0: Coming to you from a cozy little condo, high atop old Fort Ward, Atlanta. Welcome Welcome to the Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts.
1: Happy Wednesday. How many of you knew it was coming and yet because it came two minutes early, it still shocked the daylights out of you and you may have peed a little bit. You know what I'm talking about. And I know what you're thinking. Hey, Ron, thanks for that. Got to relive that nightmare. Okay. Uh, did anything change as a result of that? No, I think we're all here. Still have two ears, two eyes, two nostrils, 10 fingers, two hands, two knees, two ankles, two feet, two territorial house cats. Um, okay. Just doing a quick little inventory to make sure that the government didn't. Uh, Somehow channel something into my brain with that test. Oh, I kid the conspiracy theorists somewhat. All right, uh, later in the show, got to talk about again some of the seeds that this administration, the Biden Harris administration, is planting. You know that that old saying, the the, the planting the seeds of trees, the old man will never enjoy the shade of. That's kind of what I want to dive into. There are a couple of uh, a couple of good little plantings uh, to. Bring to your attention Uh, one that made headlines today a little more student loan forgiveness. Uh, You you know, I know folks have mixed opinions about that, especially generationally speaking, but those are seeds that will be bearing fruit down the road. In fact, in the near future, for those who benefit from that and the economy on the whole as well. Also, well, I'm just going to save it. That's going to be the second half of the show. And I also have to talk to you a little bit about. How uh, a baseball game yesterday, the attendance of that baseball game, should be a huge red flag, bright red flaring flag for the folks who are hell-bent and determined on using taxpayer dollars to build the gathering at Forsyth in South Forsyth County for a professional hockey franchise. I know, baseball, warning signs for hockey franchise. Hear me out, I'll explain. Of course, I'd be remiss without talking about the utter disaster that the GOP House is right now. And you know the biggest loser, uh, kind of, maybe, uh, with uh, yesterday's ouster of Kevin McCarthy, who went down faster than Lauren Boebert in a movie? Th- uh, anyway, the, the big loser or one of the big losers, Marjorie Taylor Greene from right here in Georgia. She was all about some Kevin McCarthy. Kevin McCarthy was letting her hold the gavel and stuff and be on committees and stuff. And she had a more prominent role in the House of Representatives. Well, not so much anymore. Anyway, we'll discuss that. And uh, who may likely be the next Speaker of the House? You're not going to, you'll, you'll believe it. It's <laughs> There is no floor for how low the GOP can go, but it's fun to watch as long as it doesn't destroy the country in the process. First things first, Governor Kemp. Pretty excited that Georgia again ranked number one for business.
2: Tenth consecutive year, Area Development Magazine has ranked Georgia the number one state for business for a decade now. I'm so glad that Governor Deals with us today because when he first announced that Georgia had earned this ranking, And certainly throughout my tenure in office, the Atlanta paper would make fun of this award saying it came from a small niche outlet that no one's ever heard of. But I will tell you the proof is in the numbers. Since we first received the number one for business ranking 10 years ago, over 343,650 new jobs have come to Georgia. And those are just the projects that the state played a role in. Because the decision-makers read this publication, we've created more jobs than the Atlanta paper has subscribers. (laughs) And I want to thank Area Development Magazine again for recognizing all that Georgia has to offer and the opportunity that can be found because of you all in communities all across our state. Not only did they name us number one overall, but of the 14 criteria used in the selection process, we're also the top spot in seven categories and we're in the top 10 for all 14. We continue to rank highly in logistics and infrastructure with the Department of Transportation maintaining a reliable network of highways and the Georgia Ports Authority stepping up to meet the challenges of an ever-evolving supply chain while connecting Georgia companies to global markets our energy availability and cost also received top marks and we're thankful to georgia power our emcs and other providers for their great partnership in economic development the recent completion of vogel 3 the vogel 3 reactor the first reactor in over 30 years in america and the ongoing work of vogel 4 further strengthens our standing in this area And like so many job creators, area development ranked us high for our pro business approach, cooperative and responsive state government, and speed of permitting. All areas that depend on legislators and local community leaders like those before you. Our top-ranked workforce training program, Georgia Quick Start, also continues to set us apart. So I want to thank the Quick Start team as well as our TCSG and USG leadership and faculty for preparing the next generation of workers. I say all the time economic development is a team sport. Commissioner Wilson, Commissioner Kaminsky and Commissioner Carr said the same. And we're proud to have the best team in the world right here in the Peach State that includes people actually in the community, working hard to bring opportunity to their area. A full decade of number one status is a direct result of this teamwork and it's also responsible for record breaking jobs and investments that we've seen come to Georgia. The majority of those new opportunities are going to rural communities. This 10th straight year of being the best in the business is because of local communities. The members of our General Assembly and and our entire team refuse to rest on our laurels. We'll continue that strong commitment as we look for even more ways to maintain this ranking, something that we'll be talking about later this week at the inaugural workforce summit hosted by my office. So let me close again by thanking all the partners represented here today and to those throughout the state who couldn't be with us, especially the hardworking Georgians who make us the best state to live, work, and raise their families because they are the ones that wake up early every morning. Tending the Georgia farms, to research and develop advances in technology and engineering, to build our roads and our highways and to manufacture and assemble Georgia-made goods and vehicles, to operate the cranes at our ports that are moving records amounts of goods, to teach the next generation of workers, and so much more. We are proud of all of them, and everyone here today is proud of them as well. Today we celebrate this great achievement. Tomorrow, we go back to work. Thanks for being with us, everybody.
1: Hey, listen, when you're the governor of the state and that's a press conference, you get to have kudos to you. It's hard to argue with those sort of results, but you have to remember that the magazine in question is a magazine that caters to developers and big companies looking for big tax breaks and exemptions. That doesn't always translate to you and I deriving wealth or better paying jobs, better paying jobs with benefits, quality of life, which by the way, Georgia ranks 18th in, or uh, when it comes to child and family well-being, which Georgia ranks 38th in. These are the sorts of things that you want to start pointing out. Uh, Median household income, Georgia is 25th. You get where I'm going with this? Georgia, by the way, the 10th poorest in the state, with a poverty rate of 14%, influenced by factors such as income inequality, limited access to quality education and health care, and a high percentage of low-wage jobs. Those are the sorts of things that governors don't hold press conferences for. And remember, when Stacey Abrams caught a lot of flack for just being real about it, and of course, the clip always gets edited so that you only... In an attack ad, hear partially what she said.
2: I am tired of hearing about being the best
0: state in the country to do business when we are the worst state in the country to live. When you're number 48 for mental health, when you're number one for maternal mortality, when you have an incarceration rate that's on the rise and wages that are on the decline, then you are not the number one place to do to live in the United States. But we can get there, Gwinnett. Y-
1: yeah, remember that? All right. Yeah, in uh, the heat of that election cycle, Stacey Abrams caught a lot of flack from Republicans, and of course the media ate it up too, uh, without the context. I I say this all the time. In fact, I I tweeted something about this uh, when Nikki Haley commented about something recently, and I'll have to look it up, where where they they tend to leave the context out. Often. Uh, where was this tweet? Oh yeah, this was a couple of days ago. Uh, Nikki Haley tweeting, Joe Biden's end game. kill American jobs, crush American families, and keep American energy in the ground, oil, forever. This isn't just un-American, it's anti-American. But she leaves out the context, of course. You know, the context that says that oil companies hold more than 9,000 unused leases. I call it lying, but it's really deception by omission. But Is that not still lying? Lie by omission, deception, whatever you want to call it. To me, it's lying. It's portraying something that isn't real. It's fake. Come up with whatever whatever word you want. It's a lie. Or when Republicans want to rail on the border crisis, they always want to leave out the part where we have like, what is it, 56 military, American military interventions in Latin America in the last century that the unrest in many of those Latin American countries still exists that sends people here. It's not like they're just coming here to take our germs or because they want our health care. Or <coughs> I mean, really, they want our health care? Uh, <laughs> or they want uh, you know their child to go to a, an American school uh, ahead of your child? It, that's not what folks are coming here for. They're coming here for uh, safety, for security, and because of the unrest again. In, in a lot of the scenarios where 56 U.S. military interventions in Latin America caused unrest and still does cause unrest. Oh, and by the way, the fentanyl crisis, they love to talk about the fentanyl crisis, but they don't love to tell you that all of the fentanyl, most of the fentanyl, I should say, coming across our southern border is coming in the pockets of Americans who travel abroad and come back. They, they, they don't want to bring this up. Again, it's a lie by omission. And Yes. Okay. Congratulations, Brian Kemp, on getting that developer and tax break magazines distinction of being the number one state to do business again. But until it starts translating to the state of Georgia being the number one state for take-home pay and quality of life, and the 50th state, 51st or 2nd, if they include the territories or whatever, for infant mortality and inequality and upward mobility and all that stuff. Man, then I'm all about us throwing some press conferences and some ribbon cuttings. I'll even throw in some confetti cannons, maybe some balloons from the ceiling. We can really Toyota-thon this thing up, my man. Did I really just say (laughs) Toyota-thon? Happy Honda days. Uh, Anyway, more Ron Show after this. On the America One Radio app, America Radio dot America One dot com, or wherever you podcast. Excuse me. Welcome back to the Ron Show for Wednesday. All right, we we, we gotta spend a little bit of time on the <sighs> utter dumpster fire that the GOP house is right now. And of course, Mister Ducey with Fox News at the White House press briefing just has to lob this softball at uh, Karen Jean Pierre. You guys are enjoying this, aren't you? The last one. <laughs> is any part of the west wing here just loving the fact that republicans don't appear to be able to govern mm. the one part of the government that they actually control
0: nobody's loving anything when it's when we're not when we're not able to deliver for the american people nobody's loving that when it is important for congress to work not for us but on behalf of the american people It is important to make sure that we meet the challenges of the American people. That's what's important. What we saw, and you heard from the President, what we saw on Saturday should have never have happened. We're glad that a deal was made. We're glad that we're not in a shutdown. But House Republicans should have never gotten us that far. And so they are the majority in in the House. They can fix this. They're creating the chaos. That is not helpful to the American people. That's why you saw the president today talk about student debt relief yep. and talk about what else he's doing to make sure that we're giving a little bit of breathing room to the American people. That's why you heard from the president yesterday talking about, or our announcement, talking about um, how we're continuing to beat big farmers so we can lower uh, prescription uh, drug costs for the right. American people. Right. That's what the president cares about. That's what he wants to see. What can we continue to do to help Americans as they face really tough challenges. So this is not, we're not loving it. It is not helpful to any, any American across, across the country.
1: Yep. And that's the thing. Uh, And by the way, next segment, I will talk a little bit about the Biden student aid thing. Uh, She touched on the fact that uh, there is now an agreement in place with a lot of big pharma to work with Medicare, to lower prescription drug prices uh, another story that i think got absolutely no traction and again this this goes back to the the biden presidency just i don't want to say it's like a media thing but it's definitely an american attention span thing and maybe that's driven by media i don't know I, it's a larger conversation for another top uh, another segment but i really feel like this administration is not getting credit for all that it's managed to do and by the way managed to avoid the country falling victim to along the way. You know, like that recession they keep talking about. Uh, And hemorrhaging jobs and, uh, you know, inflation as bad as it was, wasn't as bad as it was in the rest of the world and actually is now kind of normalized. All the things that they're not getting credit for. And a lot of that, again, is just soundbite-driven, political brinksmanship and partisanship and the complaining getting more noise than, yeah, well, it could have been worse. It's really hard to prove that, But the data is out there. Uh, Anyway, I I wanted to to, to lead with that soundbite because I thought it would be pretty interesting to talk about one of the biggest losers in the Kevin McCarthy kickout. And that is Kevin's right-hand woman by the name of Marjorie Taylor Greene. Oh, yeah, Marjorie was riding high. She has all that influence in the house and got to hold a gavel a few times and lead some things and get on some committees and this, that, and the other. And now Marjorie Taylor Greene, who picked the horse, who held the house for months, uh, now she's kind of left adrift, wouldn't you say? She told the, the UK Daily Mail, by the way, that she was there to warn Representative Matt Gates against filing a motion to vacate the office of the house speaker because it would quote throw our entire Congress into chaos not an impeachment inquiry uh, not showing porn (laughs) to the entire huddled masses in the chamber and those watching on c-span no not that this is what's throwing the house into chaos I'm not gonna lie, I, th- I find this also fascinating. We've seen this division within the GOP, and, and I've said this before. I said this last week. I've said this a few times uh, over the course of this show, in it's first year, by the way, year two. Um, it, it's hard to argue that the GOP should be the party that governs this country when they can't even govern themselves. They can't get along with each other. And supposedly, there's supposed to be an opposition party that works together uh, with them to get legislation passed. I just, I. <laughs> You know, Marjorie and Lauren were tight. Remember, they were just, you know, screeching at uh, Joe Biden during a State of the Union, and now they don't like each other. I'm going to be fascinated to watch how this plays out with now Jim Jordan and Steve Scalise kind of licking their chops and looking at the House speaker role. I I think Steve Scalise is probably our best bet, but mm, not necessarily the lead horse uh, odds makers. For uh, winning this thing, um, Jim Jordan is already announced that he's gonna do it, and I, I again I just don't. There's no there there. There aren't enough Republican votes without the eight coming in alongside, uh, and there aren't enough Democratic votes for like a Hakeem Jeffries to win the thing uh, without. The Democratic Party seeking out some wavering defectors, maybe get a few to switch parties. Some of those that are in some of those swing districts or redrawn districts that now find themselves looking uh, down the barrel of running against a a sure blue victory in 2024. Uh, Do you get enough to switch parties? And I mean, that would be incredible. Uh, Although you have to wonder, about the merits of uh, a recently Republican-turned-Democrat in such a scenario, and do you primary them? Do you promise not to primary them if they toe the line? And there are just so many factors that go into this. It's just going to be fascinating to watch this all play out. But make no mistake, for the moment, even if just for the moment, that full head of steam that Marjorie Taylor Greene had <clears throat> that 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 full set of sailwind that she had pushing her boat with Kevin McCarthy uh basically drafting for her that's that's gone right now she is temporarily rudderless well the entire party is right now to be honest and left to just continue looking like the circus that they are right now and clowns are great for laughs but when push comes to shove and you got to get The lions, the tigers, the elephants, oh my, and the tent up and all of that, you know, crucial stuff to having a circus operate. Are you calling on the clowns or are you hoping that when the makeup comes off, they actually have their shit together? All right, so when I come back, let's do a deep dive on some of the accomplishments that the Biden-Harris administration aren't, to me, getting enough uh, credit for, not enough fire. I mean, we need to see some more some more smoke for Biden-Harris when it comes to student def, uh, debt forgiveness. And a lot, I know a lot of folks are unhappy that it's been underwhelming, but it's coming in drips and drops as opposed to not at all. And there was another big announcement made in late September that I think kind of flew under the radar. We'll dive into that and more when The Ron Show returns on the America One Radio app, americaoneradio.com, or wherever you podcast.
0: Take The Ron Show wherever you go. Download the America One Radio app to your smartphone and listen on the go. Or in traffic wishing you were on the go. The Ron Show on America One Radio.
1: Those of you who uh, listen to this show for... Any period of time may or may not be aware that I've kind of said from the outset of the Biden Harris presidency that it's my wish that Joe Biden were a one term president. Not because I want him not to win in 2024, more because with his age, and we know that that's a factor, polls show that consistently, but with his age being a factor, it would appear that he would probably be getting a lot more public opinion leaning his way, I believe, if he were running as a one-term president with a plan for him to be replaced by someone on the left who the country was comfortable with. Instead, what we have is a president whose approvals show that he's not that popular, despite the fact that his presidency has been, for the most part, pretty successful, very successful for some folks, Under this president, the country has survived the inflation scare that has, listen, affected just about every family's budget. No doubt about it, though it could have been worse. And in most of the first world, actually most of the world period, was worse. That is now back to norms. Of course, deflation would be us getting some of that... Buying power back, but that rarely happens. And when it does, there's usually an economic collapse of some sort. Which brings me to my next point. The recession that everyone predicted was coming as soon as he was sworn in. Well, we are three years into his four year presidency, and I'm not saying it's not gonna happen, but it's yet to happen. That despite the crushing inflation, job growth, historic. The issues that I believe dog his popularity and his re-election chances are, I believe, in this order. Number one, uh, inflation affecting the economy. Number two, and what do you go to then? Uh, the Afghanistan exit? I could sit here and, and make the case for all three. And I already covered inflation. In the U.S., we had a bout of inflationary balloon that wasn't as bad as the rest of the first world, the rest of the world, period. Our economy has been rather tenacious in the throes of supply chain problems, inflation as a result of supply chain problems, and of course, just flat-out greed. I think studies show that like more than 40% of the inflationary woes come from just companies, profiting above their norms. And what's a president to do about that? I would also maintain that the Afghanistan exit has more to do with the deal that was made before he was president and the release of 5,000 Taliban troops who were imprisoned as part of that deal. That deal coming with an impossible-to-meet deadline that he sought and got an extension for. And then he and... His military advisors realizing they needed a little more time, sought, did not get an extension of that deadline by the Afghanistani government, now infiltrated by the Taliban. Again, none of that his fault. There are those on the left, and I would say some of them to the extremes, who are unhappy because of the Dobbs decision. Roe v. Wade fell under his watch. But again, what was he to do about that? Student loan forgiveness has been blocked at every turn in the judicial system. And again, when we have three branches of government, the executive, the judicial, and the legislative, the judicial being equal to the other two, not combined, but to each, again, a president's hands are tied. Although, here's where I pivot to making the case for Biden-Harris 2024. The headline in the Georgia recorder, White House provides another $9 billion in student debt relief as pandemic pause ends. Ariana Figueroa reporting on this earlier today. Here's the story. As federal student loan repayments restart, the Biden administration Wednesday announced an additional $9 billion in student loan forgiveness for 125,000 borrowers. Secretary of Education, Gail Cardona said, for years, millions of eligible borrowers were unable to access the student debt relief they qualified for, but that's all changed thanks to President Biden and this administration's relentless efforts to fix the broken student loan systems. Story continues, the announcement comes days after federal student loan repayment started, following a nearly three-year pause due to the pandemic. Borrowers borrowers with federal student loans have the option of an on-ramp program where they can delay making payments for 12 months, but interest will still accrue. Now, the $9 billion in new relief includes $5.2 billion in forgiveness for 53,000 borrowers in the public service loan forgiveness program. That's about $9,800 per borrower. $2.8 billion in forgiveness for the 51,000 borrowers from a one-time fixed to income-driven repayment plans. I believe that is about $5,000 in forgiveness and a $1.2 billion in forgiveness for 22,000 borrowers with permanent disabilities. In Georgia alone, more than 29,000 borrowers stand to have debt discharged. Again, much like the extremes on the left, defund the police. There are extremes when it comes to student loan forgiveness. Forgive it all. Okay, in an ideal world, we'd be able to do that. However, we don't live in an ideal world. And the President of the United States, with only one chamber in the legislative branch and a Supreme Court that is highly tilted against the will of the people and his ideology and party, can only do so much. And I think we're seeing the efforts of that only so much that the White House can do being put into action. You hear politicians talk about kitchen table issues, you know, the sort of stuff that families sit around the kitchen table and hem and haw and sigh and and, and wrench, wrench their hands and worry about, right? Budget, family budget stuff, right? And that comes up so much when it comes to the cost of groceries and the cost of gas, a, another issue that is largely out of the president's hands. We are at record domestic fossil fuel production, by the way, despite the fact that All you're ever going to hear from the right is, well, he's closing off national parkland to exploration. But the fossil fuel industry here in the United States is sitting on 9,000 unused lease permits as it is. So they obviously have no interest in exploring more than they already are. And it's not the president's fault that the oil we extract here isn't really good for our own vehicles. That's right. A lot of the uh, gas and oil we use comes from abroad because of the grade of the crude. It's not the president's fault. Although one might argue that this administration's push for EV manufacturing and charging station expansion, we talked about the little faux pas Grove Town uh, a couple of weeks ago, right? I mean, they're trying to Give American motorists an option other than fossil fuels, much to the chagrin of the fossil fuel industry and the right-wing politicians that have long been pandering to them, uh, taking their lobbying money, and of course, turning it back around and giving it back to the fossil fuel industry via subsidy. Your tax dollars, my tax dollars, going to for-profit industries to prop up a fossil fuel industry that is bad for the environment, bad for our health, and obviously— Not good for domestic economic interests and longevity. And back to the family sitting at the kitchen table, not good for the family budget. Again, I keep having to say this, there's only so much a president can do. However, the things a president can do, you're seeing some innovation in thought in another realm. What else straddles the American family's budget? Medical debt reading from a CNBC article an estimated 530,000 families turn to bankruptcy each year because of medical issues and bills and what is the president and vice president looking to do about this uh, this was a couple weeks ago as a matter of fact I'm reading from the Associated Press Vice President Kamala Harris said Thursday that the Biden administration is taking the first steps towards removing medical bills from people's credit scores which could improve ratings for millions of Of people. Harris said that would make it easier for them to obtain an auto loan or a home mortgage. Roughly one in five people report having medical debt. The vice president said the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is beginning the rulemaking process to make the change. In addition to pulling medical bills from credit reports, the proposal would prevent creditors from using medical bills when deciding on loans and stop debt collectors from using credit ratings to pressure people with health care related debt. Y'all, oh, that's huge. Here's where I also mentioned, by the way, for those that don't know, I am a residential realtor in Metro Atlanta. That's my day job. That's what keeps the lights on. I can't tell you how many people try to buy a home with just barely approved credit, with a score that just gets them in, but also gets them a higher than even the floor mortgage interest rate. And we're hovering around 8% with that right now. Goes any higher, and that means the home buyer is buying less of a home. And I don't just mean physically less of a home, but like a lesser home. poorer quality. It may not be in the area of town that they want to live in. It may be in an economically repressed part of Metro Atlanta or wherever in the United States. Which means that the home they're buying, may not grow in equity. That stunts the family's ability to grow its wealth. And buying a home, owning a home, 10 years or longer, generational wealth, passing on from one to the other, that is the number one way for families to grow their wealth in this country. Owning a home, owning property is the number one way. So if you're buying a lesser home or you're unable to buy a home at all, well, obviously, your ability to grow wealth is stunted. Past biases, housing discrimination, mortgage loan discrimination, which, by the way, can can be traced back to just as far back or just as near back as the late 1980s into the early 1990s. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution did an entire Pulitzer Prize-winning series about that in the late 1980s here in Atlanta, the cradle of the civil rights movement. A majority minority community, and the AJC exposed lenders with biased lending practices. They got popped. It was jaw breaking. So that's just like a generation back. Think of it this way: my grandmother, when she passed, left me a townhome, uh, which we I had no use for. Uh, we sold it, split the proceeds between uh, myself and my sister, her two grandchildren, and I put, you know, her my, my sister's money in an IRA for her nephews to have when they need to go to college or buy their first house or baby comes or something along those lines, right? We were able to do that, whereas an African-American my age may not have a grandmother who had the ability to purchase a home because she and her husband, back in the 1950s, 1960s, didn't have the same abilities because, again, of lending bias, et cetera, and so on. And my grandfather, by the way, was in the military, so he had the returning veteran home loan program that the Pentagon, after World War II, doled out to the states. And if the state was a racist state, guess what? If you're an African-American veteran, you weren't going to have as easy a time, or at all, be able to get that benefit that you earned while in World War II. Okay, I'm going down the rabbit hole here. I, I, I'm i just pointing out that eliminating medical debt from credit scores won't eliminate the medical debt. Yeah, you'll still have the medical debt. They're still going to want that payment. And, and that's another issue to be dealt with at some point in time. But the impact it would have on your credit score cannot be underestimated. If you are close, but not quite, in a situation where you can buy a home for example or a car that gets you a reliable vehicle that gets you to and from a job versus having to rely on a shoddy vehicle or other people or mass transit to get to and from a job and we all know that you can't always rely on buses and trains to get you to your job on time and if you can't get to your job on time you may not be able to keep your job right cannot underestimate what having a credit score worthy of purchasing a reliable vehicle and or a home to grow equity and familial wealth with, the impact it would have, not just on you and your ability to live, but your future generations as well. That aids the working class, right? When I say things uh, along the lines of Joe Biden being the old man planting trees for which he will never enjoy the shade of, this is exactly what I'm talking about. Obviously, we all know he's in his 80s. We all know he'll be eighty-six. I believe at the end of his his second term, if if you were to to win it. And so the likelihood that he sees all the trees he's planting with these seeds is highly unlikely. That being said, he is planting these trees, along with Kamala Harris, who I mentioned in the rollout of the medical debt on the credit score scenario. This administration deserves some credit for that. That's all I'm saying. More Ron Show after this on the America One Radio app, americaoneradio.com, or wherever you podcast. Final segment of the Ron Show for Wednesday, and I have a little bit of a cautionary tale for the pro hockey movement coming out of Forsyth County. But I'm going to give you a baseball story to start with. Here's the headline from the USA Today. Historic low, less than 20,000 Tampa Bay Rays fans showed up to the team's first playoff game. That was yesterday. And uh, maybe the players weren't exactly energized by the 19,704 folks who did show up yesterday to watch because Tampa lost to Texas 4 to nothing. Now, listen, I'm not going to sit here and say that that's why they lost. They lost because they couldn't put any runs across the plate, right? But that being said, the reason I say this is a cautionary tale is for those who are so gung-ho about throwing a lot of taxpayer dollars at a hockey venue, a battery-like development around a hockey arena in South Forsyth County near the Forsyth-Fulton County line. The reason I say this is a cautionary tale is because I see the parallels. You see, in the Tampa St. Pete market, by the way, the 13th largest TV market in the country, baseball should work there. It should draw sellout crowds, especially with a team that is persistently good, persistently and consistently good in Tampa. For a team that has (laughs) very low payroll because they have limited gate, the Tampa Bay Rays put a good product on the field. They make the playoffs routinely. It's also, by the way, not all that far from the 17th largest TV market, Orlando. And to me, that's partially why I think what Tampa does and is looking to double down on is a huge mistake. You see, geographically speaking, the Tampa Bay Rays play in St. Petersburg, and there is one bridge, one highway that connects the abundance of that metro area's population in Tampa to St. Petersburg. And so because there's only the one way there, and because St. Pete is to the very west of that metro area, literally on the water, there's just only so much population to draw a fan base from. And listen, obviously, a 307 first pitch doesn't help. But that being said, yesterday's turnout of 19,704 is actually better than Tampa's season average of 17,781. So because of the playoffs, they actually got 2,000 more fans behind. Uh, through the gates yesterday. And that's still not good. And here's even worse. Tropicana Field's capacity is around 25,000. And that's not because that's how small the venue is. They tarp off the upper deck because they never have people go up there. They never sell enough tickets to have people go up there. This all sort of parallels with what the gathering at Forsyth wants to be. A taxpayer-funded grift for uh, a franchise owner, billionaire, unnamed yet, but we're thinking it's the Phoenix Coyotes, and the NHL and millionaire athletes that make money off of, of course, the business community will do very well, again, on taxpayer dime. But they're doing it in an area that in metro Atlanta is geographically to an extreme, like St. Petersburg. St. Petersburg is to an extreme and has limited access. In South Forsyth County, From the rest of Metro Atlanta, that limited access would be Georgia 400. And without mass transit, St. Petersburg, Tampa lacks mass transit. You seeing the parallels here? What makes yesterday's turnout so pitiful, and by the way, it was the lowest playoff attendance in a non-COVID year since the year 1919. It's been 104 years since a playoff game had that abysmal a turnout. Not by percentage, but by raw numbers. And that year it had something to do with the fact that they sold tickets in three game packs uh, for the two teams in the World Series and they went to a game seven, which means the one team had a fourth game and a lot of folks didn't know they could buy tickets. So yeah, it was kind of quirky. What's really pitiful about the Tampa situation though is that they're doubling down on this. They just announced an agreement a couple of weeks ago where they've come to an agreement with the folks in St. Petersburg to build another domed stadium, fixed roof, not a retractable, just a fixed roof stadium that doesn't look all that different from renderings than the one they're in now that draws, doesn't draw fans, on the same footprint that the current stadium sits on. Yeah, they're literally looking to say, well, we think a new venue Surrounded by a battery development, of course. I say battery development because everyone wants to emulate what the Braves did at the battery. So they want to build a battery like development around this new stadium, thinking, oh, that'll draw more fans. Will it though? Something to keep in mind about the Braves scenario is that this season will be the best season for attendance that the Braves have had since moving to Cobb County. And it, by the way, wouldn't even best the top five seasons at. I'm sorry, top four seasons at the old stadium at Turner Field in Atlanta. Now, I should point out, by the way, that Turner Field was a much larger stadium. I think it seated around 50,000, whereas Truist Park has a cozier 38,000 or so uh, capacity. And had the city Atlanta acquiesced and built a battery-like development around Turner Field, and I think lowered the uh, capacity too, they needed to get rid of a lot of seats in the upper deck, they probably would have had a similar outcome. But in Turnerfield and even the Battery Atlanta's uh, situation, you're not talking about placement in a geographic extreme within the metro area. While the Battery lacks mass transit, and hopefully someday in my lifetime I'll be able to take a MARTA up there, it is still somewhat centrally located right along the 285 Perimeter Highway and along I-75. It is literally just a few miles from the epicenter of the metro area, whereas South Forsyth is Literally on the fringe of what the entire metro area is encompassing in the first place. I said this last week. I believe the Atlanta Planning Commission abdicated their responsibility by rubber stamping this gathering at Forsyth, thinking this is going to be successful. This is going to be a boom for development. We already have an example of that not being the case with the arena in Gwinnett County. And now we have hard, years-long evidence, a struggle for a franchise on an extreme geographic edge of a metropolitan area to draw fans to its games. Can Metro Atlanta handle an NHL franchise? Yeah, probably. Can it support said franchise in an 18,000-seat arena in South Forsyth County? I highly doubt it. And taxpayer money certainly shouldn't be going to it. That's going to do it for The Ron Show. Back tomorrow, 5 to 6 p.m. on the America One Radio app, americaoneradio.com, or wherever you podcast. Show notes always available, ronshowatl.com. Thank you for listening.